everyone, my name is Connor, aka Warnock, and welcome to the show. In this week's episode, I am joined by Neil Tladderwood of Manor Park Studios based in County Antrim. Neil has worked with an array of artists across the board. Most notable would be General Fiasco and The Answer. In this episode, Neil shares his philosophies on audio production in terms of working with bands and mixing techniques. We also discuss the musical career of his band Sheer from the 90s, along with how he got started with audio production and how he built his own studio. Neil shares some interesting stories about his dealings with record labels with Sheer, along with touring the US and playing on some monster-ass festivals such as Reading and Leeds in the late 1990s. Before we begin, it would mean a lot if you could follow Warnock on Spotify or YouTube or any form of social medias. I'm also playing my first show in Wheelands on the 29th of January. Tickets are on sale via Ticketmaster. That being said, let's get on with the show. How are things now? How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Connor. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, where are you at the moment? Are you in your studio or are you chilling out in your house? In the studio, yeah. Nice. Um, have you been getting much work now throughout the whole pandemic or how is work going actually throughout these times? Uh, not good. No, I mean, obviously, it's been it's been a big problem from the very, very start. And as soon as lockdown hit, like, studio work. Um, in terms of bands coming in, obviously, that was that was completely knocked on the head. But more, more and more have been getting bits of uh, mixing and bits of mastering and stuff like that. But still, in terms of overall amount of stuff, yeah, I haven't really been that busy, you know. And do you, now, now that the world is basically opened up a, a bit more now these days, do you find yourself getting booking jobs coming in? Do you find bands are contacting you more? Or do you feel like that everybody's recording at home and you're getting more mixing jobs um, than you ever have? Yeah, definitely a bigger, definitely a bigger proportion is mixing jobs. Um, I'm getting people who maybe many years ago might have recorded here and then have since sort of got their own bits of gear and sort of learned things and starting to record themselves. So they send me stuff. And the way it often happens is like people will get it to a certain level and can record it fine, but it's just getting it, that finished product, getting everything tied in at the end, just getting it all really sounding good together. Because that's probably the bit, that, you know, that's the hardest bit, obviously, just to make the finished product really good. So uh, I do tend to get people coming back to me, you know, right, could you just finish this off, see what you can do with the mix and yeah, definitely a lot more of that than, than people coming in, especially obviously now the way things are. Yeah, and yourself personally, do you do you prefer to kind of work with artists and produce them, or are you happy? Do you almost prefer doing the mixing sort of stuff, or how do you feel on that front? I don't mind mixing. It's it's such a fresh challenge, you know, because when I record something with a band here, I sort of do it generally the same way. Like I, I have my own sort of process, but when you get something to mix or, or master, it's obviously completely different. So it's a different challenge. You know, sometimes you, you'll get things on stems and it can be recorded in a totally different way than you're used to. But then you, you sort of have to be more creative. You're, you're thinking, right, well, this this sounds okay, but this, this particular element here, maybe the snare drum or the kick or whatever it is, just sounds rubbish. Or there's a real problem with timing or something, you know, tuning or all sorts of things that can happen. But you have to be more creative. So it's kind of, I like the freshness. I like the kind of, right, here you go, something completely different. Just 
be as creative and uh, as as you can and and get the best out of it. So you know, I I quite enjoy that. Yeah, that's deadly. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it is quite refreshing. Um, do you when artists get onto you? Do you prefer if they send you? Uh, raw tracks I'm going to say raw tracks I mean like clean DI guitars so you can go off and reamp them um, or uh, along with even I'm sure MIDI drums is something that's coming in more and more these days um, especially for people that can't record live drums at home um, do you find you get a lot more of that kind of stuff coming in rather than actual recorded amps and real recorded drums yeah definitely like there's something that's uh, due to come in next week and that's been MIDI drums um, but the good thing is he can send me the MIDI drums he's recorded and he can send me the MIDI itself. So that opens things up. You know, I can I can use that MIDI then to trigger anything I want. And like I, I use a lot of my own samples that I've created over the years from my own kit. And because I know them so well, I, I know where right, I, can, I can mix a little bit of my snare in with a bit of this that'll give me some of the top end or some of the bottom end that's missing. You know, I can identify what's missing from theirs and bring my own bits to it so i i do always like to have di's for guitar and bass that just makes things easier but i generally would would either use what i've got or you know stick it through a, another kind of amp plug-in or sometimes reamp it through my own amps which helps as well so it, it just depends what you get you know but sometimes you just get the very basic things and i think i've had guitar tracks before where it just sounds like fizz but if i if I manipulate it enough through different amp sims and stuff, you can still usually salvage something about it. And again, like it's like I was saying, it's that challenge, you know, that creative challenge is, is kind of fun, you know. But the more the more you get, the better to a point, you know. If you're getting fifty guitar tracks all of the same thing, and you're trying to choose, and there's bands that have handed me stuff like that where you've just got, you know, literally almost a hundred tracks all together, and you. And then you have to start on when they decide, well, yeah, you just decide whatever you want to use. And we've got all these different parts as well. We're not sure what to use. That's where it starts to get a bit more tricky. But, you know, it's just another another challenge. Like, Yeah. Um, the one thing I actually learned from you, which I thought, thought was cool. So the last time I was up in the studio, we, you, I believe, was last November, in around that time. I think it was just maybe before the second lockdown hit. And I was talking to you about drum sampling. And the way you use drum sampling is great because I like the way, as you said, you like to actually, instead of replace, say, for instance, the snare, you don't actually replace the entire snare. You take the snare and then fill in the gaps that are missing as in just to give it that bit more of thickness. And um, I think that's great because it's just, it still keeps the rawness and the actual real tone of the drum and the player themselves, but also kind of just adds in just that missing element. Um, which I think is great because um, I wasn't. Sh- I, I I know that I always loved your drum sound, but it was cool to talk to you about that kind of stuff. Yeah, because it's that that human element. If you can just keep, you've got to keep some of that if you can, if it's there, you know. And by adding in other samples underneath, just just kind of tweaking those in a bit, you still allow the human element to be there, and it's those human elements of variation that that make a drum sound real. I mean. There's so many tracks, even brand new stuff recorded more, more so than, than ever before, where you can really tell it's it's just triggered samples. You know, even even you know the the biggest bands are doing that, and but to me it's so obvious when you hear you know fast snare rolls and stuff, and they just sound like you know that machine gun thing where you just get the 
the snare sound exactly the same each hit, and it's just it's such a giveaway. But you know, if you just kind of you, you don't you can you can change the sound so much, but you can still keep that real element, that real sound of the actual drum in the room. You know, which I'm sure they all started with when they were recording. You know, they're there somewhere. They just they just chosen to replace them and. When it goes too far, I think it just makes the whole thing so uh, sterile, you know. Yeah, like I like I love big, massive, modern production, especially in rock songs. But it comes to the point where everything sounds the same, doesn't it? It's just like yeah. uh, you expect that that drum to sound like a huge stadium, and like you said, the shotgun effect for uh, the the snare rolls is just that is yeah. obviously the clearest giveaway, and it's uh, it's I mean sometimes just a sickener um, as well. Again, it takes away the the realness. When it comes to when you edit drums, are you very edited grid or do you kind of how do you go about editing? Because I've seen you do it and you're you're quite um, fluid and quick about how you go about it. Like, are you very tight to the grid? What's your approach on that? Um, it depends on on the drummer and the band and the field kind of thing. I mean, as to how much you're going to need to do it, and you sort of have to think ahead as to what's coming. Are you going to get a lot of samples on top of this? Does it have to be really rigid or can you let it flow a bit? So it's kind of depends on the um, on the needs of the band and the needs of the production. But yeah, I mean, sometimes if you're going to get fast kick drums and things like that, you've got to get those pretty tight or they start getting very messy and sloppy sounding, you know. So yes, sometimes it'll just go to the grid if it's that kind of music. And other times it's just kind of, well, sometimes I'll just kind of take sections. And you'll find a drummer that generally is either before the beat or after the beat in general and that'll just be their style so when you sort of realize right okay this guy generally plays a wee bit ahead of the beat and you just grab a whole section and you shift it back a wee bit and that can be all you need and then he's pretty much on the grid you know he just tends to to be that wee bit ahead all the time so i I would shift sections and then if if that's still not quite tight enough then i'll maybe go in and, and and quantize to the grid for certain bits you know yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure genre, a certain genre is coming to play as well, like the likes of, say, stoner rock. You want stoner rock to be kind of very loose and raw and real, whereas maybe yeah. in modern pop production, you almost be more inclined to be for more tight to the grid in, in certain styles of music. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like it, it's a, it all starts with right, what do the band want? Where do they see themselves as? You know, what, what, what's the final product they're thinking of? And, you know, that's a really important part of any band coming in. You know, it's complete. For a lot of times, I've never met them before. I've maybe just, you know, emailed with them or whatever. And they'll come in. I'll have an idea roughly of what sort of, of a band they are. But I might never have heard them before. And they'll come in. It's just right. In that first kind of 10-minute chat about, right, what, what do you like? What do you, what do you hear for yourselves? Where do you see it going? And you just pick up all those clues and influences and things from them chatting to you and then it's so important because that first 10 minutes of you just getting to know what's in their head can completely dictate where that goes and if you get that if you get that wrong with 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 your interaction with the band if i think that they want this this here but they actually want this at the end of the day when they take it home they're gonna go oh god what happened and i've heard bands that, that happens to before and they'll come in and they'll tell me a horror story of, of when that happened to them. They went into the studio and the guy said, yeah, this is what, what we're going to do and just took over. And they went with it. 
but then they came home and I went, Jesus, what the hell is this? You know, this is this is not us. This is not what we we were thinking of. But they just well, obviously he must know better, and they just went with it. So I'm, but because I was in a band before, I know how that feels, and I never quite got the sound that I wanted when I was in a band. So I'm always careful to make sure I try and get exactly what they want because at the end of the day it's never about what I want it's about what they want and while I, I can have opinions and try and guide them um, I'd always even if it's, if it's something I don't like I'd rather have it than it's something that they like and I'll make it, make it the best version of what they like you know what I mean because it's not about me and and if, if it is if it becomes about me I think then that's when things start start to go wrong you know yeah, I can imagine like whatever about maybe doing a single or two with the band, but over the like an entire album, um, I can't imagine what it's like to basically ruin an album worth of stuff. Um, obviously, singles are equally as bad, but like, yeah, uh, I I can't imagine like if you don't have that conversation straight up to begin with, it's like, it's such a guessing game for producers sometimes because um, artists are very they're very shy and they don't a lot of bands don't really speak up and yeah. kind of keep stuff to yourself like as you were saying you have to it's almost like a guessing game and you're kind of sussing, sussing them out in the first few minutes of being there but i feel like you have a, ju- a good judge of character because you worked with so many bands and at this stage that you'd have a very good judge of character and what most bands would want especially if bands are coming back to you at least you know with that client that right this client wants his style or this line yeah. wants it to be a bit more tighter and all that kind of stuff yeah okay and you can pick things up right through the recording process like because you're you, Generally, the way I work is I'll work with individual musicians getting their parts down separately. So you get clues from that as well, you know, by chatting and talking about things and, and even the, the style that they play and you start mentioning other bands and you, you kind of, you're always listening and pulling out different wee clues so that when you get to the mixing process, you're going, right, yeah, I, I really know what, what they're looking for now. But you're you're always kind of tweaking it and always kind of, trying to get the best version of what they want you know as, as the recording goes on like yeah and so in terms of you as a producer do you like to be the person like if a band comes to you and says look we want you to produce and i mean produce as in like help them write the songs and all that kind of stuff or are you kind of the person you you prefer to be the engineer and just do the recording and let the band produce their own stuff like where do you stand on that yeah i i kind of want to do whatever the band needs and whatever the band wants you know I, I don't really like to be stamping my thing on it I don't really want to get too involved in songwriting but if they want an opinion or you know want me to, to try and help in certain areas I'll, I'll definitely do that but I'm definitely more of a hands-off tell me what you want I'd, I'd like to sort of produce them without them knowing it is kind of the way I would look at it where it just feels totally natural. They've just come in. We just talked about stuff. They did their thing. It felt totally unstressed and natural, and they managed to get exactly what they wanted at the end of the day. Now, that, I would call that a production style in itself, even though it's it's not necessarily hands-on and it's not necessarily dictating or at all dictating what, what I'm telling them to it's like it's more listening to them and facilitating what they do uh, and making it as easy and painless as possible because like for example some bands have come in and 
again, I've been to other studios where it was a very stressful thing. They, were, they felt like they were being criticized when they were doing stuff. Or, you know, they felt they were under pressure all the time. But they've told me that when they came in here, it just felt relaxed and it felt natural and it felt like we were just doing our thing and you took care of it. So I kind of, it's like, you know, I get um, swans in the water and they've got the legs going, I guess, here underneath. So in my head and, and underneath, there's points in it where I could be going, shit, this, that sounds awful or that's really bad and this is going completely wrong direction. But I won't tell them or show them any of that. I'll go. I'll just start thinking, right, what I need to do to bring this back on course or what I need to change or what am I going to do? And they haven't a clue what's going on. And maybe I've gone through that a couple of times through the session, but as long as I get to the end point, there's, you know, it doesn't matter how I got there, and it doesn't matter that we may have lost lost our way during that during that period. As it, they don't know anything about it, and all they know is at the end of the day they got what they want. That's brilliant. So that's kind of my style: more hands off, more kind of smooth out the process, and uh, and just try and nail exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, that's 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 great. Um, the one thing I I've always noticed about whenever i've worked with you in uh manor park is that you have everything dialed in and when i say everything dialed in as in like you have everything good to go like once drums are finished and you're done editing or whatever the case may be you are straight into bass you have your bass rigs set up uh straight away and you have your amps like your mess of buggy uh i get the feeling is that still your go-to head yeah yeah, um, yeah. You, yeah you basically have that good to go which is great as well because it's like there's less dilly dally and that saves a lot of time for you um, and the bands who are actually like paying you. Um, did it take you long to get all of that dialed in or was that something you slowly done over time? It definitely evolved over time, but it's something I was very aware of from being in a band, being in studios and you're spending a whole morning on a kick drum, you know, and nothing else, you know, when you're hanging about the studio and it seems like nothing's happening and you're just wasting time. I've been there so many times when I was in a band. I knew that, you know, that doesn't need to happen. There's no there's no reason why I can't have a, a brilliant kit already set up with a brilliant sound and then just tweak it if I need to as, you know, as whoever comes in, you know, on, on the spot, we, we can just tweak it. But it should be good to go from the start. And that kind of, fast working process part of that was right well, what i want i want the absolute best sound quality i can get in the amount of time that they've given me and most of the time these bands haven't got a lot of money haven't got a lot of time to spend on it so you've maybe got you know a day to do whatever you've got to do so if if, if i haven't got a lot of time everything better be absolutely slick and i absolutely ready to go because then i can get the best out of it and it means make sure that they're happy and that my stuff sounds as good as, as I want it to because the worst thing is that someone comes out and I'm not happy with it and I think I could have done better. As long as I think I've done the best that I can in, in the time, then that's fine. But, you know, that, that's going to kill you straight away if you don't put your best work into it and you've had to make compromises along the way. So the best thing to do is to get everything as slick as possible and yes, it um, gets better with 
with experience and over time, you know, you find like I can very quickly go from the Mezabugi to the Vox, you know, for a lead tone or a rhythm tone or depending on what guitar they use or how it sounds, you know, we can go bang, bang, one to the other, a different amp, a different cab, different mic, you know, it's all, it's all sitting there ready to go. It's just a matter of a couple of switches and or different plugs and away you go. And I think that's vital. And it should always be like that. I hate it hanging about in studios and twiddling your thumbs and waiting for things to happen, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and another thing that I love about your studio is like, um, your your rig is when I say minimalistic, I mean that in the best way possible. It's not like I'm walking into the studio with a crazy amount of cabs and I don't know twenty guitars. That it's kind of over, almost overwhelming on what to pick out. You have your good gear, your great gear that's good to go straight away. Was that is that something you um, intentionally kept in mind as well that you wanted to have just good solid gear that always works rather than a, like a shitload of guitars and yeah. amps lying around? Yeah, definitely. I mean. It's like try and get the industry standard tones that I know I can work with, that I know are the ones that I love, and I know I can get a good range of, of things from. Because it's so much more important to know how to use the equipment you have rather than to just keep getting more equipment because you think that's the sound you're going to get. Like the, the Mesa Boogie amp, you know, the Dura Rectifier, you can get so many tones out of that. But only when you explore and you experiment and you spend time with it do you realize, well, actually, the clean sound can be really good and it's lightly driven and it can sound great for, for some stuff. Same way the Vox, when it's really pushed, has a certain tone. It can be brilliant for solos or it can be brilliant for jangly stuff or whatever. You know, you can get so much. And then with I've got a shitload of guitar pedals. Probably got more pedals than, than anything because... As a guitarist, originally, that's kind of the thing that I collected over time. And you can really, you know, manipulate your, your sounds with, with those. Like, just by sticking in a different pedal, you can completely change the character. I think it's better to know a small smaller amount of gear really well than to just keep buying stuff and never really get to the bottom of how to use it to its best, you know? Yeah, it's... I, I almost find like people that collect gear, it's almost like a bizarre fetish. Like if they want a certain pedal from a certain era, rather than just like say they want a boss pedal from the 80s, like my God, it's not going to sound that much different at all. Yeah. Compared to like a current one that's far cheaper. Um, yeah, I always find it strange that people that do collect uh, guitars and amps, I look forward to someone slating me on this now. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but um. Yeah, that's that's another thing that I loved about your studio that was just so dialed in. Everything was good to go. And then even the pedals. Yeah, you, you have about, I don't know, 20, 30 pedals or something like that. But um, I've definitely tipped through a good few, a few of them. Actually, just one pedal. Um, when I first came to your studio, I was looking to buy just a simple overdrive pedal. And straight away, you recommended to me the Bad Monkey. I don't know if you still use that. But um, mm-hmm. that's, that's a great pedal. And I still have that to this day. And it's just a great almost like a, an alternative to tube screamer and it's piss cheap like yeah. it's not like you were pointing me towards the most expensive pedal you were pointing me through towards a pedal that was great that was so happened to be affordable and it was just class yeah i mean there's so much stuff i i'm not a gear snob by any means like and um yeah sort of have this idea when you start into recording equipment that unless it's it's one of these absolute you know, godlike pieces of equipment that cost thousands and thousands, it can't be any good. And the one that you've got that only costs a hundred couldn't possibly be any good compared to that. And I 
find over over the years, I just thought, God, that's just so untrue, you know, that that's, that doesn't exist. There was funny, there was a CD that I heard years ago, and it was comparing different microphones. Um, and they recorded the exact same thing through all these different microphones, and the differences were so minute, that just made me realize, like, you're going from, and, and the preamps as well, and the differences were so small between ones that cost, you know, 100 quid and ones that cost two grand. It just didn't make sense, you know? It didn't make sense that you needed to spend that to get those differences. So the biggest difference is how you record something and how you change the sound you're recording. And that's the skill. That's what takes a while to develop. That's that's what you train your ear for. But buying this preamp or this mic isn't going to revolutionize what you do. It's it's your ears, and it's knowing, okay, the snare sounds like this. Is that good or is that bad? Well, sometimes when you hear a snare drum on its own, when you first start recording the kit, you might think that's great. When you get to the end of the recording, you can't hear it. It's It gets swallowed up by everything else, or the tone just is horrible. And when you start it recording, you can't really recognize that. Um, and it's only when you kind of, know what it goes like from here to here and you've done that enough times you can tell well actually that snare drum at the minute while it seems okay on its own that's just not going to work and it's missing this and it's missing that then you have to know how to change it from what it is to where you want it and then you have to know when you've got it to where you want it so that that all just that just took me years of, of trial and error and it was the only way just to train my ear and and learn what what makes a good sound? What makes a bad sound? How to change it from one to the other? Yeah, um, and then another thing is, and yeah, and I completely agree on everything you're saying there. Um, another thing, I'm not sure, maybe you agree with me in this because we're both guitar players. I find when it comes to guitarists, and even me recording myself, like this is quite a crude uh, statement, but I almost feel like seventy percent is from the guitar player's hand in terms of tone, feel, and sound. That um and in the way the guitarist actually reacts to the amp sound itself, do you get what I mean? As opposed Absolutely. to like the amp being the hundred percent, like this glorious amp that costs like four grand, being the actual tone itself. Um, it's the it's the guitar player that provides the tone, and then the amp is just there to kind of almost uh just facilitate what they're trying to express. Yeah, I mean, I find that day and day out because I have certain bits of gear that people use. So I have a PRS guitar. And the Mesa amp. So I might have used that one day and a guy does a rhythm track and it sounds amazing. Then another band will come in and maybe for a certain part, okay, we'll start with the same hump and guitar uh, and see if we can tailor them to what they want. But straight away, it sounds totally different. The same, it's the same amp, it's the same guitar, but just the way that guy uses the plaque, the way you know he frets it, the position of his hands, all those little tiny little things make such a huge difference. And it's the same with drums. Like I love the drum setup. Record a band and that's great and it has a certain sound. A diff- different band comes in the next day. I haven't changed a thing. And he hasn't maybe ha- hasn't moved anything. All the mics haven't moved. And he starts playing. A completely different sound. Completely different. It's like for one guy the snare could be really fat. For another guy it could be really thin and choked. And uh so like that, that just illustrates it totally. Like you know, it's the way you play the instrument has a huge effect 
on how it sounds. Big, big part of it. Yeah, even when you were talking with guitar picks, that's something I learned slowly over time. But I find it's so weird that I have guitar picks I like to play live because I'm more comfortable with it. But when it comes to studio, I tend to go for slightly thicker gauges. Just for like rather whether it's the pick attack seems to come through a bit more and more aggressive on the recording, uh, depending if I'm doing a lead riff or else if I'm using if I'm doing rhythm guitars, I might use a slightly lighter pick, and it definitely contributes uh, to the uh, the final tone. Oh yeah, massive difference. Like, so I keep a selection of picks to allow for that because a lot of time people end in recording, people tend to play with too much pressure on the frets. For guitar and then to hit too hard so you end up it can be so out of tune but it's not the fact that the guitar is out of tune it's the way that they they pull and push the strings and beat the, beat them too hard so even just changing the pick and saying well look just relax your hands a bit can completely change the whole the tone and then the tuning and then just the whole presentation of it like yeah it's funny how like if you pass a, a certain a different pick that guitar is not used to it almost feels like a foreign object in their hand and they might play maybe better or maybe shitter because they just feel a bit like a bit uncomfortable in ways. I don't know why. I, I get like that as well. If I have a really thick gauge or uh, pick, uh, I play very poxy because I'm just not used to the way it kind of bounces off the strings. Yeah, a uh, totally different feel. I know it can be feel really weird. Yeah. Um, sp- speaking of you being a guitarist, I feel like um, I'd like to go back a small bit and just talk about how you got into music yourself. So, well, like when you were younger, do, do you have family members that play instruments or was there a certain band or artist that made you realize, holy shit, I actually, I want to give this music thing a shot? Um, my brother had a 12-string acoustic around the house and that's what got me into it first. I started messing about with that um, and then enjoyed that. And then was it just played acoustic for a couple of years, really? And was it? Sort of getting together with other musicians to do stuff, but wasn't didn't have an electric guitar. And I actually started, I got an electric guitar and then started messing about as a band. But I, I ended up singing in this band, strangely enough. Uh, so I was I was the singer and the front man. I did a bit of guitar, but not really much. <laughs> so that was like when I was 17, 18, was in a covers band doing stuff. And we, we wrote songs as well, and we'd try and slip one of those in, you know, while people weren't looking kind of thing. But, you know, that's where I started, and then it's only after after that band finished, I got into another band and just became a guitarist and quit the thing and realized that I was slightly better guitar playing, but not much. <laughs> I I never pictured you to be a singer. I always thought you were just a straight up guitarist. That's gas. Is there demos lying around of that shit online? Oh, or? Fuck no, oh, <laughs> We were called the Low Riders. Um, we did one recording. One time, just to get you know gigs at, at bars, but I don't even think I have it anymore. I have no idea where it is. But no, it's not something you'd want to hear. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna just try to track it down now after this. <laughs> I'd like to think there's like a bizarre Manor Park archive somewhere in, online. Jeez, if you find that, you'll be too well. Yeah, along with all your nudes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, right. So the the band you were part of in the nineties, uh, you were part of this band called Sheer, and I find this I find you guys very hard to uh, like to put you in what, a certain genre. Like, these are obviously an an alternative form of rock music, but um, these have really heavy elements along with grungy elements and almost like noise rock elements. And like these days, noise rock is a 
almost like a popular genre, like uh, around the likes of bands like Just Mustard and maybe Girl Band. Not that I'm saying you guys sound like that, but I feel like your your sound is, was almost ahead of its time. Did, did you guys know that you had a very unique sound? Um, I, I don't know if we... Well, I suppose it's because we were all so different. Like, I was coming from heavy rock, Thin Lizzy, with a bit of Neil Young, Jimi Hendrix, Stones, you know, all that kind of Faith No More. Uh, Soundgarden, you know, coming from the, the heavier rock side, and then but they, but when I joined the band, um, they had a different female singer, and they were more of a kind of a an indie jangly band, you know, kind of um, uh, sort of throwing musicy kind of you know, picky guitar, court, lots of chorus on the guitar kind of thing, just kind of more melodic. But when I joined, like I was like. Ah! No, get some heavy guitars in there, you know. <laughs> and the, then the band kind of evolved, and then we, and then the, the cheer singer Audrey, then she joined. We all knew each other. Well, me and Audrey were at university together, Jordanstown University, up in Coleraine, and we saw this advert looking for musicians, um, looking for a guitar player, and looking for a singer. Um, so I joined first, and briefly the was with this other singer and then she left and then Audrey joined and so that's kind of how the band came together but she was from a completely different sort of musical background um she was she was a goth if you know way back in the day when when we had these sort of musical tribes which don't seem to exist the same way anymore you know and she she was much more into that but she was she loved the 4AD music I'd never heard of 4D it wasn't rock so I didn't know anything about it before AD, the label that we ended up signing to, she was into the Cocteau Twins and Liz Fraser and and Belly and uh, you know different kind of Sundays and different things like that. You know, um, Kristen Hirsch and female vocal kind of stuff like that, uh, as well as you know other eighties kind of stuff. But it was much more indie you know uh rather than rock and it was just that kind of combination that i was always trying to push more rock and she was always trying to pull it back so i suppose there was always a kind of a there's always a bit of a tension there you know it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, like we didn't get on but there was always a musical push and pull and maybe that's just sort of what ended up giving it something that we i suppose we we always wanted it to be something different and we, we sort of realized, well, maybe this is what will give us an edge to maybe break through or maybe someone will take notice of, you know, and I, I suppose it did to a certain extent, you know, I mean, nobody will have really heard of us, but we did, we did get a couple of albums out. So, you know, we had a good time. Like. Yeah. Um, I actually read an interview that you done with the Irish times. I, I think it was back in like 1996. And uh, you actually mentioned in the, in the interview that uh, you were the one that, did your best to introduce the heavier elements because you were a fan of Metallica. Do you remember? Yeah. That? Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that interview? Not specifically, no. <laughs> yeah. No, it was cool because um, it was it was nice to just to read that, and uh, it seemed like such an honest interview that you guys um, did with the Irish Times. Um, so when you guys you guys formed in was in '93, that you guys formed. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be about right. Yeah. In and around '93, yeah, and then you guys signed to the Dublin label Sun. Uh, how, how did that come about? 
Yeah. Um, so we, we were just playing on the local circuit and then getting quite a few gigs around Dublin at the same time, um, playing in Whelan's and what was called the Rock Garden, which I don't know what it's become now. Yeah. Do you remember the Rock Garden? No. No. Well, what whereabouts oh. is it located? Oh, God. It was in Temple Bar. Um, was it Eamon Dorans? Did it change into that? It could have been, yeah. It could yeah. have actually, yeah, that, that rings a bell. Yeah. But it was always Rock Garden when we knew it. But we were playing in those kind of places and uh, just being a band that was always doing something and had posters up and stuff. There was a Sun Records, which was um, as part of, of Mother Records, which was U2's label. So Mother Records had this big building down on the on the keys there. That was their offices. They had Mother Records and then they had Sun Records, but Sun Records was really just a pet project of the guy that worked, uh, guy worked for, for Mother Records, um, who was also in, in publishing. And he just, he just somehow heard a demo, like we would, you know, spam all the record labels in the old days, you just send a tape. And he heard a demo and then he got his A&R man to come and have a look at us and he was really into it. And he was, such a, a nice fella, like he, you know, he just liked the music and wanted to, to try and get something out there. So he, we did an EP with him and it all went really well. And through him, we ended up getting signed to 48A and he was just, yeah, brilliant. There you go. Like, off you go. Do your best. You know, he was just, he was really, which kind of spoiled us because, you know, it's not like that generally in the music business. You don't get people who are really just there for the love of the music. Uh, and and just want the best for you, you know. They generally always have their own agenda, you know, which is uh, you know, it's natural. But he was he was definitely a sound bloke. Like. That's cool. Like, and so when you say he helped you uh, get onto the London-based label uh, 4AD, was he also your A and R guy throughout that label, or did you guys get passed on to somebody else once you signed to that label? The newer no. Label? Okay. No, we got passed on to um, Colin Wallace, who um, he was the guy that saw us then for 4AD. And he was kind of just doing his thing, and we again been sending tapes and stuff. And he just came to see us one day, and he really liked us. But um, if it, yeah, if it wasn't for him, there's no way we would have signed to 4AD because he liked he liked that element, that that hardness and the heaviness, but. <laughs> as we sort of found out in retrospect, nobody else in 4AD really liked us. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Because there was a book came out on 4AD, uh, like a biography kind of thing of 4AD, and there was a small section about us. And it makes sense. I mean, it, they, they were really nice people in 4AD. They were all really nice. But basically, Ivor Woods Russell was the head guy, and Colin Wallace had joined as an A&R man. And he just fell for us, but Ivor was like, oh, "I don't, I don't get it. They don't fit with 4AD. I don't know what you're on." But Colin was so determined. He said, "Right, fine. If if you if you think you can do something, I'll sign them." So he, we flew to New York to do this gig for Ivor and Colin, just to sort of let Ivor see us. And he says, "Right, okay, yeah, let's let's give it a go." And that was it. We were signed, but it was really for Colin. Um, and nobody else was real. Nobody else's heart was in it in, in the label. Nobody, I guess, as I say, they were nice people and all, and, and they treated us really well. But they just, they just didn't get it. it. It 
if, and if you listen to a lot of the other stuff in 4ED, we're nothing like any, any of them that, that are on it. You know, it's a completely different type of music. Um, but, you know, we, we ended up with one one album. And what happened after the first album was that was all going okay. And we did an American tour and with um, throwing, was it? Um, Lush and Mojo uh, Tree. Yes, exactly. Thanks for that. Yeah, we did a mega tour with them, six weeks, coast to coast, like the dream tour, you know, the thing that as a musician, you always dream of doing in the big sleeper bus, you know, a few thousand people, venues, played in the Whiskey A Go Go and Sunset Strip and played in, you know, these amazing venues in New York and Austin and got to Got to see Stevie Ray Vaughan's band playing in, in a bar in Austin in Texas. Jeez, you know, that's, I, fucking, that's fucking cool. Oh, just had such a good time. I ended up chatting to them because we were playing South by Southwest around the same time. But we didn't actually. No, we did. We played at the same time, but it wasn't as part of the billing of South by Southwest. But anyway, we were chatting and then got chatting to the band and all that kind of mass Stevie Ray Vaughan fan and, you know, talking to them. That was a big highlight. But, you know, we did. We did so much cool stuff. We played the Fillmore in San Francisco, you know, which is one of the most famous venues of in rock music. Like, and had such a good time. Lived the dream for six weeks. Had an had an album out, and came home, and it just didn't really take off as as a lot of things do. That you know, the sales didn't reflect what we were doing. And then the big nail in the coffin was Colin Wallace left. As NR men do, they just they move around a lot. He left to go to a different label, and as I was saying, nobody else was really that keen on us. So you know, consequently, we had nobody really fighting for us, and, and no real interest in, in what we were doing. So it just kind of mutually fizzled out. Um, we had done another album, but we didn't. It was it was just before it was finished that Colin left, and you know that this is a story. It happens to thousands and thousands of bands. That's the way things go. You know, you have your one guy that champions you, and if they leave or something, they go to somewhere else. You're you're dead in the water because another NR man, even if he did like you, isn't going to want to put you out there and put a lot of work into you because you they didn't sign you. Colin Wallace signed us, so he will always get the credit for for anything we would would do. Whereas the new NR man. Who, who gets us on his book saying, no, he, he's not going to get the credit for that, even if something did happen, um, whether he was into us or not, you know. So it's just one of those unfortunate things that happens to a lot of bands, and uh, that's the end of it. Like. Yeah, I've, I've heard stories um, about, like, again, the same thing you were talking about, artists. It almost, when you get dropped on another A-man, or man, it's almost like it's a you're the burden for him or her, whoever picks mm-hmm. you up. And, yeah, I'd like to have, yeah, like you said, even if they are, even if they do like your music, I can't imagine what what it must like to be like to feel almost unwelcomed in your own record label. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was it was just awkward. We knew no one was really into us at that point. We knew there was no one gonna push. And if you don't have a champion, someone who's championing your cause, you know, you're you're dead. You've got to have people that are so committed to you as a band and to making you successful beyond anything else that if you don't have that it's just so difficult you know it's just it's so hard um yeah that's, that's, that's so unfortunate like 
I suppose at least that you you're you're you seem clever enough to kind of just look back on the the, the fonder memories that you got out of it, like the tour and all this. And I also saw that you got to play Red in Leeds in '96 or '97. Was it on the Doc mm-hmm. Martens Doc Martens stage? Yeah, that must have been fucking uh, cool as hell. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like the buzz of a big festival. You know that the the adrenaline rush from being on stage on a festival with thousands of people there. Who, okay, granted, they maybe weren't there for us, but you know they're there for all the bands that are there, and you just have to be there, and you get a bit of a response. But Jesus, the adrenaline rush I got from that, it's like no drug I've ever had. You know, I just felt like I was flying when I came off stage, you know. And we did, we did Daily Mount Festival in Dublin around the same time because the Chili Peppers were headlining and you'd Helmet and you'd Soundgarden. Oh. And, right, and Soundgarden pulled out. Uh, right, so that left the slot. So we, we kind of, joined in at the bottom <laughs> you know they, they when they pulled out we joined in and, and we went on first uh because it was all big bands like it was all much bigger bands than us but jesus christ you go out on a stage and you've got thousands of people all there it's just nothing like it you know it's just crazy like. yeah i remember you actually told me that story a long time ago and i asked you just for the crack as like a what would what would it give you to go back on stage? And you've said something hilarious. You mentioned that moment, basically saying, "Oh, if I could relive that moment, I'd go back gigging." But besides that, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody who's in a band knows that ninety percent of what you do is is just hard work, and you know you get the the odd gigs that are really good, but you do a lot of gigs that are just like, "Why did we even bother doing this?" You know, and it's so hard. But if but then you'll get. If you get one gig like that, it just makes it all worthwhile. You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um. Did you guys kind of, after all of after that festival and that kind of US circuit? Did you guys just decide to call it a day then? Uh, no, I was a bit more drawn out because we were doing the second album, and then he when he left, we had we finished the album, and then it was like, well, what are we doing? And we changed management then, thinking maybe that would help, and that didn't help, and that was you know. In retrospect, that was another bad decision, really. And then um, we just didn't really have anything else to do at that point. And we knew the label weren't really interested in releasing the album. So we said, look, will we just call it a day? And and if we can have the album and we'll release it ourselves. So we just did that just to get it out, you know. Oh, that's cool that at least you you got to do it yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I say, 4AD were the nicest bunch of people, you know. There was no animosity and there were really easy going they said look okay let's just call it a day take the album and do whatever you want all the best you know so yeah it sounds like you got the best deal out of the pretty horrible situation yeah yeah i mean i can't complain like i mean i i got the the briefest taste of what it would be like and you know it felt amazing and it's something i can always look back on and remember and just go wow yeah that for those brief moments it was absolutely incredible you know yeah yeah, no, no, it's good. Like even hearing you talk about, it, I can, I can hear the excitement and of you thinking about back to them fond memories, which is, is great. Instead of just being bitter, because I kind of, I can't imagine. I mean, I'd imagine loads of bands that have fallen into situations like that just remain bitter and they, yeah. they find it difficult to look back on the 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 kind of the good things that came out of it. Oh God, yeah. I mean, there's so many things you could you could complain about, and so many things that you could feel all. Oh, just all this shit happened to us and we didn't deserve it but no I mean what's the point of that like you, you, 
you just gotta remember what what you what you did and what was good and what was good was fucking brilliant like yeah and i feel like the fact that you do remember all the good times may i'd imagine that's what made you realize well i still want to be involved in music which now you do audio production so after like the band broke up did you just come home and decide right i'm going to do so i'm going to just get into audio production like was that something you're always doing for years or was it after the band's call it a day that you decided to get into it like how did you get into audio production so as i sort of mentioned earlier i was never that happy with our production so even our first album like when we recorded our album we we did it in Rockfield in Wales, right? You know, which one of the most iconic studios in the world. I don't know if you saw the BBC documentary about it recently. Yeah, I've actually, I was actually, I interned oh. there for a couple of weeks or for a week uh, with a, a producer called Ramesh Dogandora. But yeah, I was in uh-huh. studio. It's, it's incredible, incredible, incredible studio. Absolutely. And to be there for, we were there for a month. Like we, we, we had a residency in the same uh, studio that you know oasis were using like a couple of months before and second coming you know the stone roses they'd only just been in like a year before and they'd spent a year uh in the residential place that we were staying in for a month you know it was it's incredible it was just and the history way back to all the queen and bohemian rhapsody and black sabbath and countless countless other bands but it just felt like fuck this is amazing you know again one of those feelings that you are do this is legit you know i am actually doing the dream that i've always thought of and it was just the most amazing experience and day in day out in the studio but i wasn't into recording at that point i was just into the guitar i was totally focused be the best guitarist get the best out of my part contribute to the band as much as possible but and and trust the engineer and the producer 100% but I just never got the results that I had in my head and never heard coming back from us what I heard from bands like Soundgarden and Stone Temple Pilots and the bands that I was really referencing at the time. I just wasn't hearing that back from us and it got me really frustrated. So when we started doing the, the second album, um, I'd already started thinking about recording our demos just kind of well like what's the point of spending money going in to another studio to do demos let's spend that money on a bit of gear and i'll i'll do the recording so that was fine we got four tracks and i got a wee mini disc player and a few mics and stuff like that and i started recording our demos that was really where it started and i just got more and more into that then i'm kind of obsessive to a degree anyway so i kind of really right went headlong into that trying to learn as much as I can, trying to get the best out of the equipment. And the demos w- would get slightly better and slightly better. And then by the time the band finished, the demos were actually sounding pretty good um, to the point where, okay, well, they're nearly as good as the stuff that ended up on the second album. What, what am I going to do now? The band had stopped. So myself and Audrey, the singer, we were then a couple, and uh, we started doing a dance kind of thing. Once she had finished, called Lima. Started as o- called Aureus and then became Lima. And um, we did some stuff and it never really, nothing ever really happened. But we signed to a, a label in Dublin, but that was a disaster that went nowhere. Um, but through that, we already got into 
got some good contacts with DJs and she started singing on DJs material and writing music and writing uh, lyrics and writing songs for them. And she did a song with Nelly and Nelson who were on that label. And that did really, really well. And then that got picked up by Armin Van Buren and he did a mix of it. John O'Callaghan, who's a local, very big local Irish DJ, did a mix of it. And then she ends up doing a track for Armin Van Buren and she ends up going on a tour with him, this thing called Armin Only, where he plays, he DJs, brings guest vocalists who he's worked with on stage and she did she did a tour of that she did a gig in la doing that she did a gig in in amsterdam doing that in front of, you know ten thousand people played the, like an la forum or whatever it was in la we went both of us went over and she did a gig there just just singing one song you know with him and so we did that for a while and i just kept doing the music production um as well just kind of saying look local bands anybody i knew i'll record you for a couple of quid or whatever and i just kept slowly building that up and then buying more gear building up the studio it was just in a bedroom in the house so i had the spare room in the bedroom and i cut a hole in the floor in the corner of the the floor the road leads down into the the living room below so i had all my all my mic cables all going downstairs through a hole in the floor and that was the drum room downstairs put a wee camera on it so i could see upstairs and that was basically the studio for like from about 98 to 2004 2003 for so five or six years we were doing that until there were just so many bands coming in so often you gradually built up to the point where, right, well, I'm going to need to get a proper studio. There's bands in all times of the day when Audrey's trying to have her breakfast. There's bands in doing whatever, you know, because people are coming and going all times of the day doing drums. and You know, you can't really record drums at, late at night in a housing estate, you know, so it just started to get impractical. And then I found this other house and you could build a, a studio in it. And just started designing that, just myself, just really researched how I could do it and brought in tradesmen to do the work that I needed done to build the studio. Uh, and because of, like I said, I've been in studios, I knew what it was like to be a musician. I knew what it was like hanging about. I knew what it was like being in shit studios where you had no nice place to stay, you had no accommodation, you had no kitchen, you had no pool table or you had no... It just wasn't a nice environment, so I knew that had to be a big part of it. Somewhere it was really, really felt good to be. So as soon as you were there, you were like, "Oh yeah, this feels, this feels great." You know, I, I could enjoy being here. So because immediately you're, you're in the right frame of mind. And I knew from being on that side of the of the desk, from from being a musician, what bands were going to be looking for, what I was looking for. Like you got to have a decent sized control room that you're not tripping over each other. You know. Things like that, decent lighting, just atmospheric mood, plus key bits of gear that actually make a difference. You know, not the, I don't, there's no point buying a fucking SSL desk, spending a hundred grand on that, because a band doesn't care or know what the difference is. And as far as I'm concerned, the difference between an SSL and, and the Mackie that I use is negligible. And that that's proven by the fact that people mix in the box 99% of the time these days anyway. You know, that's just the way music's done. 
and it's no worse for it, you know. So focusing on what I needed to do and getting the studio the way I knew I wanted it to be, you know, that's that's where I ended up and just gradually build it up over the years. Like I didn't go out buy everything at once, I just built it up as I, as I went along, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, like uh, as you're saying, that like I knew one of my first one of my first times going into Phantom Park was probably like the late two thousands, uh, when there was like a boom of Dublin bands going up to you at that time. Um, it was so it's so great, and like the fact that you have the bunk beds downstairs, a pool table, and then a shitload of films to watch. You're like it's not like we're just bored in the middle of nowhere. You did your best um, to provide entertainment while maybe the singers upstairs and the, the guitarist and drummer chilling downstairs or whatever the case may be. Um, and you had like all them things all add up to having such a great time. And the best part is your your studio is so rural that you have the, the bands can just get away from home. Like literally they can just put whatever any shit that's going on at home away and just focus on the music. Yeah. I find that a lot where bands will stay over just to be a band. You know, it's just it, it it's such a an experience to come. You can arrive the night before, you can have a few beers, play pool downstairs, come up the next day, start into the recording. You feel like a band, you've jailed, you've had a good bit of crack and you're ready to go. It's not just turning up in the morning going, right, okay, let's go, bang, and you go, right, off you go home again. And then if you're, if you're there for a couple of days, you're chilling out afterwards, you're talking about what happened, you're shooting the breeze and having some more beers and whatever. And People love that kind of experience of because like I said like I was talking about before my experience of being in the band and how amazing that felt maybe they can get a little bit of that feeling of what it's like to be a fucking band who's doing this for a living you know who's who is doing well this is what it, it would feel like you know yeah absolutely um no yeah like I, I agree completely with everything you're saying and that's all the experiences that I felt as well that like I felt like for that moment in time, even if I was going back to my shitty job on the weekends or whatever the case may be, I felt like I was in a proper band doing a proper album instead of just doing some demos down the country or something. Yeah. uh, It's like almost like an importance um, and such a a fond memory all all my times in Manor Park. Um, I actually have one question for you in regards to that. So when you were, when the audio, when all the recordings started to pick up and you're getting more and more bands in, were you met with an ultimatum where you're like, right, do I go and head on with this recording? Or is there some stage you're like, fuck, I might have to get a real job? Like, was there, were you ever at crossroads where you had to pick one or the other? Absolutely. Like, when I st- once the band had stopped, luckily we, we'd had saved enough that we had, were able to get a mortgage and get a house. Myself and Audrey had got a house and had a mortgage. But we had no money and we literally couldn't, couldn't pay the mortgage. For a while, we, we had to rely on help from her mum and dad. She was out working selling credit cards, but I was doggedly trying to stick to the recording bands. And even though I was only getting bits of work here and there, I knew if I took a job, that would be it. There was no way I was going to give up a job to, to take some recordings here and there because you're either doing it or you're not. You can't say, oh, well, I'll, I'll stop doing this job for a week while I'm recording this band, but then I'll go back to the job and that's fine. No, you can't do that. You've either got to be doing the job because they're not going to let you do that. They'll let you do maybe take a week off once, but you can't go backwards and forwards and you're not going to get all of a sudden six months of studio work that's going to keep you, you know, 
keep you alive all just all of a sudden you've got to take the risk and you've got to just keep going right I think I can build it up but it's going to be shit for a while um and I did go for job interviews and I did get accepted I got accepted for two different jobs like one was a warehouse guy and one was a an IT guy because I'd done a, a degree in computers so that's what I was doing Jordanstown University and I got accepted for those and then at the last minute I turned them down because I knew that if I did that I'd never go back there's no way I would give up a steady job for a couple of days recording here and there so I thought no I'll just I'll stick it out Audrey was 100% behind me like even though we had fuck all at that time but and I was on the dole and I was just trying to get as much as I could and eventually I picked up and you know it worked out but yeah it was, it was shit for a while Wow, that's I, I love the honesty in that, and like I don't think many producers even I'm sure some producers talk about it, but it's like it's it's nice to hear the actual the realness behind um, everything you went through in terms of like with sheer and uh, which led on to the studio, which led on to you basically having to choose a career. Do I still keep doing the one thing I love, or do I just give in to the black and white lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, it was hard, but I'm obviously I'm glad I'm glad I did it. You know. Yeah, obviously. absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we start wrapping things up, I actually have something uh, I, I want to just mention to you. So before uh, a good few years ago, I emailed you out of the blue asking you for advice on recording equipment because I was completely in the dark about all this. I had no real friends that were recording at the time. And uh, when I emailed you, I expected two things. One, that you wouldn't respond because you're possibly busy or maybe you weren't asked. And then, or two, that you'd get back to me with a couple of lines. But you actually wrote me an entire essay basically <laughs> explaining what microphones I should get for like drums. And like, it's not like you're linking me to like the most expensive shit. You're just linking to me, give me, providing me with Toman links and a uh, mixing desk and like a basic microphone or an interface. And uh, I always often think about that, especially when um, I'm recording. And I'm not sure if you actually remember sending that email back. Oh, to do me. You? Yeah, yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. That's gas. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I, I was shocked when you sent it back to me and I was so humbled that um, I did actually go and get the microphones. Uh, it was like a, like just a kind of bundle set you get on Toman. Yeah. Yeah, ever since then, um, I've always been thankful. And that's why I, another reason why I love coming back to you, not because you do provide great work, which you do, but um, it's such a an, an kind gesture that I was like, this is a guy I want to constantly keep in touch with and keep uh, working away with. So I just want to say thank you for that. That meant the world. Oh, geez, thanks. No, I really appreciate that. And because like, then, it's like I was saying before, because gear doesn't have, I don't believe gear has to be expensive to be good. And I don't believe, because when I started out, I thought, look, I don't care that I don't have the best equipment. I'm going to make it sound amazing one way or another. I'm just going to find how you do it. There's a way of doing this. I'll find it one way or another. You know, there, there weren't any courses around in those days. You couldn't go to university or or, or get in a whatever course t- to learn. You had to teach yourself. So I just knew if I just kept at it and tried it enough different things that it would click eventually. And so that's why I always kind of believe that I don't have to tell you to, to buy, or if you just buy a Neumann mic, that's what you need. You know, I mean, I, because that's not my philosophy and the studio looks, you know, I, I hope the studio looks really nice and maybe looks a lot more expensive than it actually is. But that's just to make, that's just to give you confidence in me. 
because it's about what I do and how I do it that makes the difference. Not not the gear. The gear is just your your tools, you know. And that's why people can make amazing recordings and and uh, and send maybe ones I get to mix. And the recordings can be brilliant. Like, I'm not saying that when people send me stuff for mixing it's bad. A lot of times it's great, you know. And there's times I'm going, shit, how did you get that sound? You know, motherfucker must ask what way, what way you did that. Because you, you, know, you, you learn from everyone. And it doesn't matter that gear is so cheap now that that's just the way it is. You can make amazing recordings with very little money. If you just have the skills in your, you know, in your ears and your head, and you're willing to to really work at it, you can you can you can make a great recording. It's about how how you can adapt yourself to that, you know. And that's yeah, that's why I was I was you sort of got me on when, when you asked me about that. I just wanted to make sure that you got stuff really absolutely could do the job, but didn't have to be expensive because it's, it was one of my kind of things. In me, you know, that you don't have to have a big fucking desk or even though a desk, a desk is big, it's not expensive. You know what I mean? You don't, it's not about the money. I've had, heard so many people have gone into big studios and been, and had shit come out of it. People have, bands have been in with me and they've been to Abbey Road and they've done stuff and they've come back and thought, this is shit. And they've come back to me to record going, because we know you'll do what we need you'll get you'll get the best out of us whereas they couldn't you know the studio is irrelevant it's the person whether they identify with you and they're on the right page and they know how to get your sound is, is all that matters i think yeah oh no absolutely yeah and i love that you have that mentality that like more expensive doesn't mean better it's basically it's how you use your gear and how you interact with it and how how, how you work with the musicians as well as a producer yeah totally yeah no that's incredible Look, we'll leave at that, Neil. Thanks a million for doing this. Um, this is a fucking cool chat, and I feel like I got to know yeah. you a bit more. But um, I really Cheers. appreciate you taking your time out uh, to do this with me. Absolute pleasure, Connor. Thanks very much. Okay, cool. See you later, Neil. Bye. Cheers. Bye.